My name is Joey Ashbrook. I am the president of the Cincinnati Lawyers Chapter of the Federalist Society. And today I have the great pleasure to introduce Judge Matthew McFarland, who is going to moderate our panel on parental rights. Judge McFarland currently serves on the United States District Court for the Southern District of Ohio, and by personality does not like long introduction. But I will tell you, per, as a pertinent matter, early in his career, he did serve as a juvenile magistrate prior to spending 15 plus years on the Ohio Court of Appeals. And now we're lucky to have him in the Southern District, Ohio, on our United States District Court, where he served for the previous three years. Judge McFarland, thanks for doing this. Floor is yours. Thank you, Joe. Good, good morning. Thank you for coming, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. We've got an all-star panel of folks Although I have to tell you, the hour and 15 minutes that I spent in my confirmation hearing, these lights are brighter. <laughs> but I'm hoping the uh, crowd is softer. Uh, but thank you. Yeah, thanks for not reading my mom's introduction. Uh, uh, and, and, I, and to rest aside anyone's concerns, uh, I did not go to the Ohio State University. So uh, we get that right out in the air. Thank you. <laughs> Amen to that. Um, but it's really a treat to be here. Um, I often get asked what's the difference between a federal judge and a federal lawyer practicing in federal court, and the answer is the federal judge knew a politician <laughs> at one point. So I'll, without further ado, we're going to jump into our, our uh, panel discussion this morning on recent developments in parental rights. Uh, these are all-star practitioners, each in their respective fields, and I think our Lineup is uh, Luke's going to go first, and then Emily, I believe, and then Thomas, if that's correct. So I'll give you Luke's introduction, and then I will uh, do each one before they speak. But uh, Luke works for the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. He litigates cases on a variety of topics, including parental rights. Before joining Will four years ago, he was a deputy solicitor general in the Wisconsin Department of Justice. He got his undergraduate degree from the University of Wisconsin. Uh, and his JD from New York University. He clerked for Judge Diane Sykes on the Seventh Circuit. And he has uh, three boys, uh, a special place in heaven for his wife. Uh, and he lives in Madison. Uh, I asked each one of the uh, panelists to give us some fun facts about uh, each person. And the fun facts about uh, uh, Luke, well, he, he does acknowledge that he loves the Green Bay Packers, although it's tough to mention that here, I'm sure. Um, and he enjoys snowboarding in the, in the winter. Uh, he spent his childhood in Mexico City where his parents were uh, missionaries. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to Mr. Luke Bird. Well, thank you so much for the invitation and the opportunity to speak. And what a beautiful place to have a conference this morning. Um, to any Colts fans in the room, I just want to say on behalf of Wisconsin, you're welcome for Jonathan Taylor. We still <laughs> claim him as a Badger, but we're glad that you can borrow him for a little while. Um, so to set the stage for our conversation, I'm going to focus my remarks on what I believe is the single greatest threat to parental rights in our country today. Imagine waking up one day and discovering that your 12-year-old daughter, while she is at school, is now your son. This is not just a scary hypothetical. This is really happening across the country right now. I have personally gotten that call from parents five or six times in the last few years, just in Wisconsin alone. This is happening because schools across the country have decided that 
children, often of any age, can change their gender at school, their name, their pronouns, and bathroom use, in secret from parents, but of course with input and influence from school staff. A group called Parents Defending Education has begun compiling a list of school districts with policies like this, and so far they've identified a thousand. And I'm sure that list is nowhere close to complete. I'm aware of multiple in, in Wisconsin that have this policy, but it's not written down anywhere. So I want to give you some examples of what these policies look like. In Madison, where I work, the school district's policy says explicitly, I'm just reading it here, school staff shall not disclose any information that may reveal a student's gender identity to others, including parents or guardians, without the minor's consent. And the district will go to great lengths to keep this a secret from parents. The policy directs staff to use one name at school and another in communication with parents and when parents show up during the school day. It also directs staff to hide records from parents. You might be wondering, how do they keep this a secret? Uh, as you may know, FERPA and state law equivalents give parents complete access to their children's education records. So how do they hide this? Uh, most of these school districts use what's called a gender support plan to record the change of name and pronouns. And Madison's form at the bottom of it has this disclaimer that says, please put this in your confidential file, not in student records. Uh, there is an exception under FERPA for a, a teacher's personal notes. Obviously, this doesn't fit that exception, but Madison is trying to force it into the exception to keep this away from parents. And I think this just illustrates how far school districts are willing to go to hide this from parents. It's worth pausing for a moment to think about how anomalous this is. When you send your child to school, you expect an open line of communication with teachers. If something happens at school, you expect a call, and that's usually what happens. And for any decision out of the ordinary, parents, uh, school districts send home parental consent forms, sports, field trips, taking an aspirin at school. All of these require parent approval. But school districts have carved out this one issue, this serious controversial issue, and decided that if minor students want to make this major life decision and want to keep it a secret from their parents, no worries, we will help you as the school district. In other words, school is now Las Vegas. What happens at school stays at school. Or if you like the analogy better, fight club. The first rule of school is we don't talk about what happens at school. And they wonder why parents distrust schools these days. Many school districts are even openly hostile to parents. The Old Clare School District has trained all of its teachers that parents don't have a right to know their children's identities at school. They have to earn that right. Those statements came to light got some media attention, and as you can imagine, a lot of parents very riled up. And you would think school officials would be embarrassed by these statements and back off of them. But no, of course, they doubled down on them. Even in situations where parents are aware, school districts will override and disregard parents' decisions about what's best for their child. There are multiple lawsuits in the country right now where those are the facts. And I'll tell you the story from one of our cases in a little bit. But to understand the significance of this, you have to understand a little bit about the science of gender dysphoria, which is a real thing that people struggle with. I'm, I, don't, I don't just acknowledge that. But there's a series of studies across multiple places in time that have shown that the vast majority of children who deal with gender dysphoria, we're talking roughly 80 to 90 percent, ultimately desist. That is, they stop wanting to identify with the opposite sex. Now, those studies were done before the recent trend to immediately transition to the opposite sex. And more recent studies of, of young people who have transitioned show dramatic drops in desistance rates. And this has led a number of experts to hypothesize 
that transitioning may actually have a causal effect on persistence of gender dysphoria. And this makes some sense, right? Our identity is formed, especially when we're young, in part from the messages that we hear from people around us. It's also incredibly hard to admit, especially for a young person, that you've made a mistake about this. Put yourself in middle school. If you've transitioned and now decide that you were wrong about that, how do you tell that to all of your peers? So because of that, if you have adults throughout the entire day addressing the child, confirming over and over again that they are really the opposite sex day in and day out, it can have long-term psychological effects. Not only that, but it sets the child on a path to physical interventions, cross-sex hormones and surgeries later in life that many children don't appreciate the long-term consequences of. For these and a variety of other reasons, many professionals recommend against an immediate transition and believe that children should first work with a mental health professional to process what they're feeling and why and hopefully find comfort with their body. All that is to say, when a child says, I feel like the opposite sex, I wanna change my name and pronouns, there is a serious decision to be made uh, that some adult has to say yes or no to. And parents play that gatekeeping role. Our job as parents sometimes is to protect our children from themselves. Anybody who's been a parent of a one-year-old, I swear they are constantly trying to kill themselves. <laughs> uh, and teenage boys would binge eat candy and play video games all day if we let them. What these policies do is they override parents' ability to say no to a transition by always saying yes. And if a child is concerned that the parents might say no, no worries, the school district will hide it from the parents. So let me give you an example in practice of how this plays out. We represent uh, the family of a child who went through this. Uh, their daughter during the pandemic became isolated and depressed and started to experience a mental health crisis, which included questioning her gender. So her parents sent her to a mental health facility to get her help with this. And as they later learned, the mental health facility immediately affirmed that she was a boy and pushed her to transition and told her, your mom is gonna be your worst enemy, but the sooner you transition, the better. So with that push, the daughter decided that's what she wanted to do. She told the school and her parents, uh, but the parents decided no. They decided, we don't think this is what's best for you right now. And they weren't saying no, never, but they said, we want you to first process your mental health issues before you make this serious life-changing decision. They told this to school staff, communicated their decision, said we want you to refer to her by her legal name and, and pronouns associated with her biological sex. The school consulted its lawyers and basically said, sorry, uh, if you send her to our school, we're gonna call her whatever she wants, regardless of your decision as parents about what's best for her. So they did what I think any parent would do in that situation. They immediately pulled her from school, pulled her from the mental health facility. And a few weeks later, after being removed from that affirming environment, their daughter changed her mind. She realized that her mother was right, that she was really a girl. Uh, and she later told her mom that having adults around her affirm that she was a boy repeatedly really messed her up. That was her words. Now in this situation, the parents were aware of what was going on and were able to prevent a transition. But imagine if this had been happening for months at the school before the parents found out about it. How much harder would it have been for her to undo the transition? So situations like this and policies like this have led to a wave of litigation across the country. I am currently litigating three cases against the school districts that I've been talking about, Madison, Eau Claire, and Kettle Moraine in Wisconsin alone. And by my count, there are well over a dozen more cases across the country on this topic. There are a variety of claims in these cases, uh, but the main claim by far is a constitutional claim that these policies violate parents' constitutional rights to raise their children. 
Uh, in a series of cases from the United States Supreme Court, the court has held that the 14th Amendment protects parents' rights to make decisions concerning the care, custody, and upbringing of their own children. Now, my co-panelists are going to talk more about the scope and history of those rights, but those cases establish two important principles that I think, in my mind at least, should make these cases relatively easy. Number one, parents are the primary decision makers with respect to their, their own children, not government and not even the children themselves. That's why you can ground your teenager and not worry about a false imprisonment tort claim, though maybe <laughs> some feistier teenagers have tried. Uh, and second, government can't override parents' decisions simply because it disagrees with them or believes it could make a better decision. To override parents, you need to provide procedural due process, notice, a hearing, an opportunity to respond. And government must apply a presumption that the parent's decision is in the child's best interest and can only overcome that presumption with some sort of high substantive standard like harm or abuse. So this is why I think these cases are easy. These policies presume exactly the opposite. You'll hear a lot of justifications for the policies, and most of them are complete garbage and incoherent. But the main justification you'll hear, and the real motivation I think behind them, is that school districts believe they know better than parents. They believe they know the right answer and how to respond when a child struggles with their gender identity, and the right answer is to always say yes. Not only that, but the school's job is to protect students from their parents who might say no. In fact, that is the criteria they use for whether to include you as a parent in this conversation. The Madison School District's training tells its teachers, if the parents are affirming, we'll include them. If not, we'll exclude them. An Eau Claire teacher uh, even said the quiet part out loud. She put up a, a sign in her classroom that says, if your parents aren't affirming of your identity, I'm your mom now. As an aside, this makes the cases somewhat fun to litigate because opposing counsel will often walk into a bayonet. Uh, in attempting to justify the policy, the arguments they will make will prove why it's a constitutional violation. It's also why these cases are so important. Uh, as you'll hear, there haven't been a lot of cases really dealing with the details of how far parental rights go. But now this wave of litigation is really going to force courts to wrestle with how far parental rights go. And if these cases ultimately lose, uh, then I think parental rights really have very little cachet. Uh, because if school districts can take a major serious decision like this, transfer decision-making authority from the parents to themselves, and hide it from parents when they're using that authority, then there is no stopping point. Uh, during a summary judgment hearing against the Kettle Moraine School District, uh, the judge even recognized this and asked a series of hypotheticals to opposing counsel. Uh, could, could the school district override parents' decisions about diet during the school day? And the lawyer said, yes, <laughs> which got some raised eyebrows, as you can imagine. So I'll stop there, but I'll just briefly say these cases are still in their early stages. There have been some wins and some losses so far. Uh, a lot of the losses have been on ancillary things like standing and not on the merits. But I'm very optimistic that we're going to see some good wins in the near future. Uh, I'm hopeful that we'll win our Kettle Moraine case, and there's a number of cases currently on appeal to the federal circuits. Uh, the Fourth Circuit one, most significantly, the judges uh, all said, not a question, like this clearly violates parents' constitutional rights. So I'm very optimistic that that one's going to win. But I also think this, this issue is likely to reach the Supreme Court eventually, given how pervasive these policies are and given how unlikely it is, I think, that courts will be universal in their treatment of these cases. So I can talk 
a lot more about these cases, but I'll end there and let my co-panelists take over. Well done, thank you, uh, Luke, uh, appreciate that. Um, next is uh, Emily Gao to my right. Emily serves as Senior Counsel and Vice President of Advocacy Strategy for the Alliance Defending Freedom. She's a member of the United States legal team. Uh, in this role, she supports ADF's legal and legislative objectives throughout culture shaping initiatives. Before joining ADF, Emily served as the Heritage Foundation's Director of the DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society. In that role, she led a team of experts who provided policy recommendations on life, marriage, and religious freedom, something dear to all of our hearts. She also defended international religious freedoms in the United States Department of State Office of International Religious Freedom, the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, and the law firm of Joseph Kogan's. She taught international human relations as an adjunct at the George Mason University Scalia Law School. She got her undergraduate from Harvard, cum laude, and her JD from Harvard as well. And she is a member of the DC Bar and admitted to practice before the United States Supreme Court. Uh, fun facts about Emily, uh, she was on the inaugural golf team at uh, her undergraduate institution, so don't challenge her to a long drive, anyone out there. Um, she also is a very big fan of the Chicago Bulls. Uh, I know there may be some Reggie Miller fans here, so uh, hold your tomatoes or throw them at me. Um, but uh, she's been, uh, just, just all of these are exceptional people, I've got to know them working on this panel. So I'll turn it over to Emily to uh, make a presentation. Thank you so much, Judge. You're welcome. Um, it's wonderful to be here at Federal Society and appreciate the invitation. And it's great to be here in Indiana, where um, you and Attorney General Rokita have shown such leadership on parental rights and really uh, the Bill of Rights here is a model for the entire country. And of course, very grateful to be on the panel uh, with you, Luke, because ADF served as co-counsel in two of the cases that um, Luke has been leading in Wisconsin. And Luke, you did a great job of laying out how these secret gender transition policies are harming children and undermining parental rights. And ADF is filing more cases around the country. We represent parents, teachers and counselors who are challenging secret gender transition policies in Virginia, in Kansas, and here in Indiana. So I'm gonna briefly share about a case here. 30 miles away from here, Pendleton High School adopted one of these secret gender transition policies. And a counselor there, Kathy McCord, objected because after 37 years of working with kids, she knows that children need their parents and that schools and parents should partner together. Kathy has the right to tell parents the truth and not be forced to lie to them. And parents have the right to direct the education of their children and know when their child is struggling with something as difficult as their gender identity. But unfortunately, these policies that empower the state to take authority over children are expanding, not only in the area of education, but also affecting parental rights in healthcare and even parents' custodial rights. So how can protection of parental rights be strengthened? To suggest a path forward, I wanna cover three topics today briefly. The Supreme Court's jurisprudence on parental rights, the test for unenumerated rights in Dobbs versus Jackson, Mrs women's health. And then finally, what can the Supreme Court and Congress do? So first, 
Um, as Luke alluded to, the Supreme Court's jurisprudence on parental rights is robust. For 100 years, the court has said that there is a fundamental right to form a family and that when children come into the family, parents have the duties to direct the upbringing, education, and care of their children. And of course, when you have a duty, you have a right. And the court has recognized this as a fundamental right um, for parents to direct their children's upbringing according to their own consciences. So going back to 1923 in the case Meyer versus Nebraska, the Supreme Court upheld parents' rights to direct um, their children's education by instructing them in foreign languages. And the court said that the right to establish a home and bring up children is fundamental. Um, the, the Meyer court also said it is the natural duty of the parent to give his children education, education suitable to their station in life. And then two years later, in Pierce versus Society of Sisters, the Supreme Court recognized that parents have the right to send their children to a private school. And the court said that, quote, those who nurture him and direct his destiny have the right coupled with the high duty to recognize and prepare him for additional obligations, close quote. The court has also warned against excessive state control of children. The court in Pierce famously declared that the child is not the mere creature of the state. And then in 1972, the Supreme Court in Wisconsin versus Yoder upheld the right of Amish parents to educate their children at home, despite a compulsory education law in that state that would require children to go to school until 16. And the court said, quote, this case involves the fundamental interests of parents as contrasted with that of the state to guide the religious future and education of their children. So the court's jurisprudence reflects the common sense presumption that fit parents who bring a child into the world know and love that child the best and are best equipped to raise that child according to that child's unique abilities and character, much better than the state can. So why is there any confusion? Well, one reason is that parental rights are not enumerated in the Constitution. And the Supreme Court has grounded parental rights in the 14th Amendment's protection of life, liberty, or property. But um, as many of you know, there are many skeptics of substantive due process. The good news is that Dobbs provides a clear way forward. In Dobbs, Justice Alito articulated a clear test for analyzing fundamental rights, which was first explained by the court in Washington versus Glucksburg. So here's a quote from Glucksburg. The Due Process Clause specially protects those fundamental rights and liberties which are objectively deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition and implicit in the, con in the concept of ordered liberty." Close quote. Justice Alito's historical analysis in Dobbs clearly showed that while abortion does not have any history or tradition and does not pass the Glucksburg's test, parental rights do. And parental rights not only have a robust lineage um, in the constitutional jurisprudence, but also in Anglo-American history. Both William Blackstone and the American Blackstone, James Kent, wrote about parental rights in the 18th century. They both described the duties and parents that, children, that parents have to their children and described the schoolmaster's authority as delegated from the parents. And in the 19th century common law, parents had the right to choose what courses their child would take in the school. Dobbs is good news for parental rights because as the Yoder court stated, 
the primary role of parents in the upbringing of their children is now established beyond debate as an enduring American tradition. So if parental rights pass the history and tradition test in Glucksburg and Dobbs with flying colors, then why are government policies usurping the, roles of the role of parents? So to understand, I wanna look at some perspectives of those who are skeptics of parental rights. Last December, the Federalist Society Religious Liberties Practice Group hosted a teleform with William and Mary law professor James Dwyer. He argues that the state is the ultimate guarantor of a child's well-being, that the state confers parentage as a positive right on adults through, um, through law, and then the state confers, uh, sorry, the state, the child and parent relationship isn't special, it's not unique, it's comparable to that of a guardian of an incompetent adult. Also, in 2022, you may remember President Biden told teachers of the year at the White House that when children are in the classroom, quote, they're all our children. They are not somebody else's children. They're like yours, close quote. So these statist views of the child beg the question, to whom do children belong? And Professor Melissa Muskella at Catholic University has an answer. The child belongs first and foremost to the family, led by the parents. Parental rights are pre-political because families create the state, not the other way around. And the family and the state have separate but overlapping spheres of authority. But the state should not interfere with the family except to protect a child from harm, which should be defined non-ideologically. The contrast between the statist view and the family-centric view of the child is playing out all throughout the country through policies that I'm about to describe. Lawmakers in California and Minnesota have recently passed laws that empower courts to take temporary emergency jurisdiction over any child who was in those states for gender transition. And the Biden administration's new Title IX rule reinterprets sex to include gender identity, which could lead to gender transition plans all across the country that would undermine parental rights. So in light of these policies, both the Supreme Court and Congress should be more vocal about the standard of review for parental rights. In the 2000 case, Troxel versus Granville, the Supreme Court upheld the rights of a mother to determine the conditions under which third parties could vis visit her children. While the court did reach the right conclusion in that case, it did not vocalize a standard of review. Therefore, lower courts have inconsistently, uh, have treated parental rights inconsistently. Therefore, both the courts and Congress should clearly state that parental rights, like other fundamental rights, like free speech and religious freedom, should be treated with strict scrutiny. Congress passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in the wake of Employment Division versus Smith to protect religious liberty. And now Congress should pass a bill that ensures the federal government policies that burden parental rights must serve a compelling government interest and be narrowly tailored. 
Congress should include a private right of action so that parents can hold the federal government directly accountable when policies like the new Title IX rule go into effect. And it is going to, to go into effect in October, so this is urgent. We are working with a member of Congress on legislative text, and we hope to see a bill introduced very soon. As Professor Rick Garnett has said, parental laws, parentage laws, don't create children, just like property laws don't create dirt. <laughs> Status claims to possess a child, even temporarily, are contrary to constitutional jurisprudence. Children belong to their families who know and love them best. A hundred years of the Supreme Court's jurisprudence and history and tradition show that parental rights are fundamental rights. Both the court and the Congress need to be more vocal though, and clearly state what the standard of judicial review should be and the scope of parental rights so that families can meet these new and emerging challenges. Yeah. Thank you, Emily. Great job. And our next uh, speaker is uh, Mr. Tom Fisher. He is the current SG Solicitor General for the state of Indiana, position he's held for nearly 18 years. In this role, he has litigated and advised the Indiana Attorney General about many things, including parental rights, defense of the new state law, banning gender transition surgeries for minors before joining the AG. He practiced in Indianapolis and Washington, D.C. He's also clerked at the Seventh Circuit. Um, that's okay, you don't have to leave. He didn't hear me. Marshall, get him. I'm kidding. Uh, well, kind of. Um, but anyways, uh, he clerked for Michael Caine on the Seventh Circuit. He is also a graduate of Wabash College and the Indiana School of Law University. As far as fun facts for uh, for Tom, of course, uh, he is a non-elected official, but his favorite team is the Indianapolis Colts. Uh, so he might yell out Omaha. I don't know if Peyton Manning is available uh, in his presentation. But uh, another fun fact, uh, he can uh, squat a personal record of 585 pounds. So he's also serving as a deputy marshal this morning. <laughs> If anyone gets out of hand. And a final fun fact, uh, finally after 18 years uh, working with the Attorney General, I noticed that he's gone. He, the hazing has quit. He says he didn't have to wash the car or drive him anymore. So <laughs> I get that. But without further ado, uh, Mr. Tom Fisher. <laughs> Thank you, Judge. You You're laugh, welcome. but you know, when I, one of the ways I first uh, came into the good graces of Steve Carter, who was my first uh, Attorney General boss, was actually driving him around a little bit on the <laughs> campaign trail. So <laughs> it does work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and I will say, you know, being a Colts fan, I, we are very excited about, uh, about the draft, uh, about the prospects for our turnaround this year. Uh, not only Jonathan Taylor, but now Anthony Richardson. And I had a nice long talk with the, uh, the parking lot attendant on the way in about the Colts and their prospects and her thoughts on Richardson. Maybe you, some of you had a similar discussion. Uh, but it was, uh, it's great to be here in the home of the Colts, and we, we, expect, uh, we expect great things. Um, Attorney General Okita's uh, comments this morning I thought really hit, hit right at the heart of, of kind of the tensions that we're faced with in contemporary discussion of parental rights. And in, in many respects, um, you know, he, he gave a little framing to, to what I want to talk about today. And, and it's, you know, I, I think take this as a sort of a, a bit of a, 
reality check when we think enthusiastically about uh, talking about expansive parental rights um, in these uh, modern schoolhouse settings. Um, and I think that these problems and the way that they, they come together, they really illustrate why the conservative legal movement as a whole needs to think pretty carefully about how and how we pick these fights over parental rights and how we fight them once, once they're picked against us or once we pick them against others. Uh, we obviously you know, sympathize with the parents, um, the sorts of parents that Luke described who uh, object maybe to the, to the woke curricula that their children are hearing in school um, or that are the subjects of secret gender support plans, uh, putting the parents in effect on double secret probation, you know, <laughs> they don't even know about. Um, and, you know, we're also very concerned about those parents who oftentimes get canceled and sometimes uh, arrested, uh, perhaps labeled terrorists, just because they speak at school board meetings and object to woke curricula and gender support plans. And our impulse is often to advocate for a robust understanding of parental rights that will be sufficient to empower these parents to overcome those very real and misguided efforts to undermine fundamental parental authority. But at least when we're talking about the asserted federal constitutional parental rights uh, that are so important in these traditional ways, the, the rights that Emily was outlining with such care uh, and such clarity. Um, when we're talking about those as distinct from, for example, variations under state constitutions or narrowly drawn statutes, I think our impulse to protect parents, and the one, especially those with whom we agree, can very quickly undermine many of the other priorities that the conservative legal movement has championed for so long. And those priorities, I think, uh, we need to be reminded of from time to time and to consider uh, very carefully how modern discussion perhaps can become uh, sort of enmeshed in tension with those, those long-standing priorities and commitments of the conservative legal movement. Now, the most recent vivid example, the one that I think has been put on the table pretty clearly, beginning with A.G. Rokita, and I think uh, mentioned uh, by, our, by my fellow panelists as well, is uh, the litigation over laws prohibiting gender transition procedures for minors. I happen to be in the middle of one of those cases. We had a law passed the session by our General Assembly. We've been in, rushing through briefing and this week, uh, oral argument in a case challenging that, and yes, there is a parental rights claim made. Uh, and these are, are I think, uh, put near the top, perhaps not at the top of the list that the plaintiffs like to rely on. They're very fond of equal protection as well. But the parental rights claims, I think we have to be, you know, we have to take very seriously. Um, and these types of cases are pending around the country. And in defense of what I think of as you know, uh, laws that are very uh, defensible in many respects, you know, we need to be able to speak uh, authoritatively and with clarity about the limits on parental rights. Uh, the idea that they don't extend into every uh, possible way that parents interact or may want to interact with their children. Now I don't think, don't get me wrong, that the argument in favor of such a right is terribly powerful or persuasive in the context of challenging 
laws prohibiting gender transition procedures for minors. Uh, I don't think as a matter of, of history, uh, it, it bears out very well. I don't think as a matter of doctrine, especially in the wake of Dobbs, it bears out very well. Who would think, for example, that after Dobbs, a parent has a greater right to choose an abortion for the child than for herself, right? No one thinks that, That's, that would be silly. Uh, and yet, you know, the, the thrust of the argument being made on the other side amounts to something like that. Uh, so I think ultimately we have uh, very good arguments uh, that we can make to, to push back against parental rights theories in that context. But they, those claims are getting some traction around the country uh, in various district courts that have heard such cases. And I think while the long-term prospects for defending against those claims is positive, uh, I am concerned about pushing sympathetic courts that we might have in other contexts into making broad pronouncements about parental rights that would ultimately come back to harm our arguments when we need them in the context of gender transition procedures. Now, don't get me wrong, I am not equating the parent's right to know what is happening with the child at school, um, with the parent's right to pump the child full of blockers and hormones or uh, surgeries or anything like that to, to change the child's uh, gender. But I am concerned about how broad doctrinal language about parental rights in one context can affect litigation in another. When litigating in favor of parental rights, I think it's critical that we adhere to the language and the examples afforded by the precedents that Emily outlined and to argue as specifically as possible from historical example. I want you to consider today another example where this has come up that I've had to litigate and, and just, you know, let's ponder for a minute how it, how it relates. Um, so this is a situation where a broad conception of parental rights led to um, what I think of as a fairly absurd result, at least in the, the language that, that the court used when evaluating this claim. So for years, the city of Indianapolis and the state of Indiana were locked in litigation with the ACLU over the constitutionality of state and local juvenile curfew laws. We ultimately lost in the Seventh Circuit. Now, these cases focused on both free speech claims and parental rights claims. While the Seventh Circuit decision, uh, ultimately invalidating the law, really focused on the speech claims, it also discussed parental rights in the opinion, albeit, I think, in dicta, but still at some length and at some, uh, I think, at some cost to uh, the shaping of the doctrine going forward. The upshot was that even apart from any speech rights of the kids, the parents have due process rights to allow their minor children to be out after 11 o'clock at night. Now, I found the court's discussion of this right to be quite astonishing, particularly given the ACLU's framing. And don't get me wrong, the, our local ACLU lawyers are terrific people. Uh, I've been friends with them for, for a long time. They are, they are great litigators, and, and um, I respect them uh, very highly. Um, but in this case, I really was very surprised at how far they were willing to go. I, maybe one shouldn't be, but I was. Uh, and this was, this was a while ago, so maybe I was just too, too green at the time to realize what uh, kind of what that there were no limits uh, on, on what they might argue. But their position in the case was that, and this is coming from one of their briefs, their position in the case was that a parent had a right. No, no, let me phrase it the way they phrased it that the parent's right to permit the child 
to be out after 11 o'clock at night, to attend an Indiana Pacers game. Yes, their example, an Indiana Pacers game, was at the core of parental rights and responsibilities. Are you kidding me? At the core? Really? That struck me as just fundamentally absurd. How in the world do we go from the right to educate your children in German or to, to choose a private school or to educate your children at home to, hey, go to the Pacers game, go to Steak and Shake afterwards. This is part of your upbringing. This is, the, this is, you know, this is what I think is good for you. But there is, I think, some willingness in some quarters to entertain broad claims, and we have to be very careful about how we articulate them, or we might get what we ask for, and we may not like it down the road. So given the, the long-term issues at stake in Pierce, Myers, Yoder, and Troxel, uh, I think that the claim that the ACLU was making really mocks the seriousness of legitimate historically rooted parental rights, and not to mention, does it undermine legitimate government interests in the health and safety of minors? And so my point here today really is that we as conservatives need to be careful how we couch our parental rights arguments so that what makes our nation great and free does not decay into farce. More generally, we have to remember that no matter how virtuous our advocacy of parental rights is today, any resulting broad doctrines concerning unenumerated rights and liberties will always be turned against conservatives, eventually. You might call that Scalia's second law of constitutional dynamics. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, his first law of constitutional dynamics is the first person to cite Marbury versus Madison loses. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well done. Thank you, Tom. Well done. I would just open up. Uh, Luke, do you have any comments from any one of the panelists you'd like to add or uh, detract from or any thoughts? And then I have some other questions I'm going to throw out just briefly. Yeah, I think I think Tom points out an important point that you have to be very careful about how you define parental rights. And there's certainly some tension here between these cases that we're talking about. Um, to my mind, at least, there is a difference between uh, sort of government broadly regulating something, child labor laws, uh, the medical industry, curfew laws, that sort of things, versus government interfering in a particular child's life and making a decision for a particular child. And so that, that I think, it's not entirely satisfactory because you know what happens if government says parents may, must always affirm their child if they say they're uh, struggling with their gender identity, but but I do think that somewhat distinguishes these cases, and I do think there's a virtue in the case law method that we can, we can decide these questions as they come up one by one, and, and that will ultimately, hopefully, uh, resolve this stuff, so. Yeah, thanks, Emily, any follow-up? Yes, appreciate you, um, Tom, raising these tensions. I think these are really important discussions for conservatives to have as parental rights and gender transition uh, bills are being passed in the states. I think that um, the issue of gender transition really makes us look at you know, the scope of parental rights. Obviously, we think parental rights are fundamental, that's clear in the constitutional jurisprudence, but parental rights are not absolute. Obviously, parents don't have the right to harm their child. Parents don't have the right to 
perform child sacrifice. They don't have the right to um, perform female genital mutilation. They don't have the right to just take their child for a cosmetic plastic surgery at a particular, you know, at, at a young age. They don't have the right to give a child, you know, tobacco or alcohol. Um, and so we do set some limits on what parents can do. And that is the proper role of the state to regulate health and safety. And that's what's happening, I, as I understand with most of these gender transition bills, is that the state is using its, its power to regulate the medical profession. It's not actually like a direct um, law that is addressing parents. It's a law that um, addresses what the medical profession can do. And, and the state does that all the time with e-cigarettes, right? Um, I was just looking on the internet about e-cigarettes and there are tons of, tons of websites about the danger of e-cigarettes to teenagers. Um, and with the idea of gender transition, particularly through hormones and surgeries, there should be tons and tons of websites too about the dangers to children. But because of the debate in the medical profession, which is largely being um, suppressed by the mainstream medical organizations, the eminence-based medical organizations in this country. I don't think the American public is getting um, the, the evidence on gender transition. In Europe, there are, as you know, five nations that have already put limits um, on gender transition through surgeries and hormones through their public health authorities. And Florida did that through the State Board of Medicine. And now I think 18 states have passed laws limiting gender, pediatric gender transition. So, I mean, there's a, there, you've raised an important tension, uh, but I think the, the issue of gender transition can't be addressed only through the parental rights lens. It also needs to be discussion of the correct standard of care for children struggling with gender dysphoria. And I think what the state has done, in this case, regulating the medical profession is completely within the um, appropriate power and authority of the state. Thanks, Emily. Any follow-up, Tom, on any of that? Uh, only that I have no doubt that Emily is right, that we could distinguish between regulating the medical profession and uh, what is in the interest of health and safety for, for minors or for adults and what happens in the schoolhouse. Um, I am only concerned about how we conceptualize the rights that we are advocating when it comes to what's happening in the schoolhouse so that it doesn't have um, negative spillover effects in areas that are, are uh, really, uh, I think, undoubtedly appropriate for, for government regulation. Um, and with regard to Luke's excellent point about trying to rely on the cases and, and sort of the individualized inquiries, we just don't have enough deputy AGs. There are a lot of them here today and they're great and they're terrific, I, but, but uh, we, you know, uh, if we have to win every case, uh, and every parent has a claim to make about um, whether gender transition procedures for minors are uh, appropriate in a given case. Um, that, uh, that makes me very depressed. Yeah, let me just throw out the question. Do you think the uh, pre-pandemic, post-pandemic times have exacerbated these issues? And if so, how do you, how do you see that? I'll, I'll, I'll let Emily go first. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think that the pandemic, you know, 
allowed parents to see what's actually happening in the classroom because children were going to school online mm. and they saw that critical race theory and that gender theory are being taught to children. Children are being indoctrinated and pressured to, you know, think that their race is what defines them and defines their classmates and everyone. Um, they're being obviously taught to question whether they are trapped in the wrong body. And we also know that there was a tremendous spike in um, mental health crises among children during the same period. And the, the, mental health, the mental health crises and the rapid rise of gender dysphoria in children, I think, are related because so many of these children have comorbidities with gender dysphoria. Um, there has been such a tremendous rise in the number of kids identifying as transgender or non-binary. And um, it's... Um, totally different than the previous understanding that we had of gender dysphoria, which affected mostly adult males. So a lot of people are questioning, why is there this sudden rise in children? And I think a lot of it is related to the comorbidities of children experiencing mental health problems like anxiety and depression. It's unfortunately, so many of the children that we see who are or caught up in these gender transition plans in their schools, they have other underlying problems that they're struggling with. And the school's are just taking it into their own hands to try and say, oh, the problem is you just are trapped in the wrong body, but they're totally ignoring all of the other underlying issues. Great answer. Uh, Luke, thoughts on that? Yeah, I totally agree. I think, I think the pandemic really gave parents a window into what was happening at schools and has awakened parents to uh, realizing that they need to pay more attention to what is going on in school districts. So, the policies that I was talking about, um, as far as I can trace it, started being adopted by school districts in the 2015, 2016 timeframe and just started spreading. Um, and a lot of school districts passed them quietly. It was just done by internal staff. It wasn't actually the school board voting on it. They would post it on their website. Um, Madison's policy was adopted in 2018, right? But you didn't hear about this back then because um, I think a lot of parents weren't paying as much attention as they are now. Uh, and once you start digging into what's actually happening, I think a lot of parents discovered these policies and, and were shocked. I mean, I, I was shocked as a parent when I heard about this, when I was first told about it, I was like, that can't be real. And I looked it up and was like, oh, that's, that's real. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Tom. Any thoughts on, on pre-post pandemic issues? No, I, I don't really have, I think, anything to add on that. I'm just looking forward to what the school choice panel has to say about that, because I think that's gonna be a really interesting answer. <laughs> yeah, let me throw out another one. Where do you think, um, in your view, the most promising battlegrounds are on these issues where states haven't moved. Is it, is it in the state legislature? Is it in the school board? Is it at the um, what, whatever municipal, I mean, the, the regulatory bodies or professional development associations? Where, where do you think uh, maybe the most success could be achieved? I'll, I'll start with Luke. Yeah, I think it's all of the above, honestly. I mean, yeah. I, think, I think these cases have a really good chance of winning in the courts, but they have also uh, awakened legislatures to, to act. Uh, so Florida passed a parental rights bill. Wisconsin passed a parental rights bill. Uh, it was vetoed by the governor, but the legislature passed it. Indiana has the one passing through even, I think Congress passed one that addressed the gender transition in schools. So uh, I just think calling attention to this issue and telling the stories um, has, has really had an effect on legislatures. And we've also seen school boards um, adopting policies, even in Wisconsin, there's a bunch of school boards that have specifically addressed gender transitions and said, no, we need, we need parental consent like we do for everything else. 
before we allow a student to transition at school. So I think that I think that success can be had at all levels and we should be fighting on all fronts because this is so pervasive. Yeah, thanks, Luke. Tom, any thoughts? Yeah, I was uh, pleased with A.G. Rokita mentioned that we were able to get pretty quickly some uh, added parental statutory rights to speak at school board meetings. Uh, and I think that that's a, a good uh, kind of indicator that there are some uh, real political uh, winning issues, politically winning issues to, to be had here. I think one of the other interesting things here is with respect to school boards, there, you know, it's been such a sleepy corner of the universe for so long. And these issues are really raising the profiles of, of school board seats and prompting really, uh, you know, lots of high quality people, um, hopefully more and more conservatives to, uh, to run for those spots. And I think it, you know, sort of raises questions about, gosh, are we doing what we need to do to, to make sure we have um, robust political accountability of school board members? And, and what else can we do uh, possibly in that arena so that these issues don't get you know, buried under um, uh, a sort of groupthink uh, and unaccountable kind of method of governing. Hey, Emily, thoughts on that? Yes, I agree. All levels, parents should be engaged at all levels. So the um, Alliance Defending Freedom, where I work, and the Heritage Foundation and Family Policy Alliance launched the Promise to America's Parents last year to provide a roadmap for parents to engage at every level, school boards, state legislatures, and Congress. And the Promise to America's Parents is 10 principles for protecting parental rights, um, primarily focused on accountability, choice, and transparency. That covers both parental rights in education and healthcare. And that website is promisetoamericasparents.org. It's supported by 40 public policy organizations, grassroots groups around the country that protect parental rights. And I, I mentioned earlier the need for Congress to pass a federal parental rights bill because of Title IX. Um, my colleague Kate Anderson and I have a commentary on the Federal Society website about how the Biden administration's reinterpretation of sex to include gender identity is going to lead to more secret gender support plans in every state in the country. And that's why no state will be safe. So absolutely pass parental rights bills in your state legislatures, but don't stop there. The federal government needs to be held accountable. The, all courts in this country need to be clear that parental rights need to be treated as fundamental rights with strict scrutiny. Any other follow up on any of that? Yeah, can I Go just ahead. add one more thing? Of course. Um, I just wanted to add, I think there is a lot of fertile ground in state court litigation as well. So it's tempting to bring a lot of these parental right claims under the 14th Amendment in federal court. You get attorney's fees. But a lot of uh, state constitutions have analogs. And actually, there are even stronger bases for parental rights in Wisconsin's constitution and probably in others. Um, and one of the issues that hasn't been resolved yet in federal court is the standard of review to apply to parental rights whether strict scrutiny or not, but a number of state courts have held, Wisconsin included, that strict scrutiny does apply unanimously a few years ago. So uh, that I just think there is there is a lot of fertile ground uh, in state courts um, for these parental rights claims. I'm just curious, as, you know, I was a, many moons ago, I was a juvenile magistrate in, in a rural county in, in Southern Ohio, and uh, we would frequently be, uh, I would often say, you know, a child has to lose to win the case, you know, they'd be charged with a delinquency offense or an unruly offense, and their parents were absentees, so they actually had to lose that case to, to win their case. And I'm just curious, do you, do you think those um, principles maybe of in loco parentis or parents patriae or 
Um, and and do, do guardian ad litems have an effect on any of these litigations at, at the local level, do you think, in any of those formats? I know we would appoint a guardian ad litem to represent the interests of the child and the delinquency, and sometimes there was a conflict between, but, but I'm just wondering, are those, in the analysis of the best interests of the child, do you think those interplay with one another? Any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a complicated issue. I said at the beginning of my remarks that I'd gotten this call from parents that, uh, you know, I just discovered my child's transitioned at school and, yeah. and I just learned about it. Uh, a lot of those situations don't become cases because now it's this messy situation. You have a real school. child involved and the parents in crisis mode trying to help their child. Um, you know, so if you were to get into court and parent says, this is what I want and child says, this is, I want something different then I think you would have to have a guardian ad litem. Um, but you know, I just think it's a pretty simple, a simple way for school districts to handle this. If a child says, I want to change my gender at school, the school should say, we can do that, but we need to get parental consent in the same way we need to get that for any other significant decision. If you want to take medication at school, we just need a parental consent form. So that's, that's what I think the policy should be. But, but you're right in litigation, in a, in a real situation, you could need a guardian item. I don't know a lot about family law. So. Yeah, no, it's okay. Tom, any, any thoughts? Just along the best interest, who, who, who decides that? You know, where do you think it falls? <laughs> well, I, when I think about that question, I think mostly about the Department of Child Services and who's yeah. one, of, one of my client agencies and, and, uh, and all of the uh, various views and, uh, you know, policies that come into play there. So I don't think I can really distill uh, a single answer to that question um, other than uh, to acknowledge that, uh, you know, as with any other issue where there is a concern about the child's welfare, it is going to get very messy and very complicated very quickly. Yeah, Emily, any thoughts? Well, I think the presumption should be that parents are the best to take care of their children um, because, parent, because children belong to the family led by their parents. But of course, there are some cases in which um, some parents, and these are exceptions, are um, involved in abuse or neglect of the child. And that's when you know, there are the kinds of proceedings that you've overseen where um, parental rights are limited or terminated. But unfortunately, bringing together all the things we've been talking about, gender ideology is becoming a litmus test for parental fitness. Um, California has also just passed a law that basically brings gender ideology into the definition of parental fitness. So now if a parent in California does not support the transition of their child to a different gender identity, including with surgeries and hormones, that parent could be declared unfit, guilty of abuse or neglect under California law. And so that's why it's so important that when these parental fitness tests are applied, that the standards be objective and not ideological. Gender ideology should not be a basis for determining that a parent is not fit to parent their child. Yeah, great answer. I have one more question. I think we can give, Joey said we could go over a little, maybe a little uh, over time, and I didn't know if we wanted to leave some time for questions. So I'd like to do that. But I guess I would love to ask the panelists in their expert opinion. Uh, you know, in the Court of Appeals, when I was there, I, I used my eight ball and uh, they took it away from the district court because we didn't have time to grab it. Uh, but I'm just wondering if you were to shake your eight ball and to predict the future of this issue of parental rights, um, 
in your perfect world, where would you see it going? And uh, I'll, start, I'll start with Luke. Where, where do you, where, what projections do you have or where do you think the Supreme Court of the United States might end up or any, any thoughts of the future, how, how you see this developing? Uh, I mean, I, I think it's going to divide the federal courts, <clears throat> honestly. Um, listening to the, so two, two of these cases have been argued before federal circuits. And when you listen to the argument, you can hear the judges wrestling with uh, how far this right goes. But I, but I certainly think some of the cases are going to win and some are going to lose. I, as far as predicting where the Supreme Court's going to come out on that, I don't know. Um, but in the meantime, I, I do think you're going to see more and more uh, state legislatures getting involved. I think you're going to see more and more school boards um, passing policies on this because it is, it's such an important issue to parents, obviously, and anybody who runs into one of these policies who has a child who deals with this uh, and has the school override them becomes an activist and it, and it just awakens um, these battles. So I, I think we're just going to continue to see fights until eventually I think the Supreme Court's going to have to weigh in. I, I, I hope they see these cases as I do, that it's relatively simple um, because school districts are overriding parents without even giving them an opportunity to respond or deferring in any way to their decision. And, and I think the case law is very clear that to your prior question, uh, who makes the best interest determination? It is parents first. And the only time you can override that is with sufficiently high uh, standard like harm or abuse. Um, but you just can't presume that they will make a bad decision, and that's what these policies do. So I think it's an easy case, but we'll see. <laughs> Thanks, Luke. Tom, any thoughts, uh, projections? Yeah, it's hard to predict which is going to kind of win the, <clears throat> the, the race to a Supreme Court decision, whether it's going to be one of these gender support plan cases or if it's going to be a bathroom case or if it's going to be a gender transition procedures case. They're all sort of uh, kind of in the mix right now, and I think there's some real possibilities that um, – that either the bathroom cases or the or the uh, transition procedures cases could get to the court first, and if so, I think that, believe it or not, I think that that those cases in what, whatever form those decisions take are going to add some clarity, um, which isn't to say there aren't differences with the gender support plan cases, but I think if we can, I am optimistic ultimately that um, we will be able to regulate gender transition procedures in bathrooms. I'm just I'm probably overly optimistic just because it's my nature. I should be more pessimistic about these things. But, um, but in any event, uh, and I think if we come out, uh, come out okay on those, I think it'll, uh, it'll help uh, with the gender support plan cases. But uh, I do recognize there are very different issues at stake. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Emily, any thoughts for the future? Yes. Well, I'm also optimistic that when the court takes up a parental rights case that it will um, look at the Dobbs test and I think it will um, uphold parental rights as fundamental rights. Um, so I share optimism on this panel. I also think that um, what Attorney General Rokita said about socialism is a really important warning. Um, I think what he was absolutely correct when he said that social issues are also economic issues. So my family is originally from China. I was born in the United States, but I actually moved to China when I was 14 with my family. And so I lived in a communist society and I know what it's like to have a society without freedom in which the state controls everything. And one of the main things that the state tries to control is the family. And so I am optimistic that parents in America 
are standing up at school boards, they're standing up in state legislatures, and I believe they will stand up in Congress to protect the right to parent their children. And the freedom of the family is core. If we have free families that are strong families, that will keep America a free society. Very well, well done. Uh, I think we have some time for some questions, about five minutes, if you would just limit it to the question. And uh, I don't know, Joey, if you wanna help maybe with, if we have a mic, okay. Yeah, right, right here, go ahead. I'd like to know what experience the states have with prosecuting teachers, because undoubtedly in this environment, there are teachers where there would be probable cause of grooming, probable cause of sexual assault, and probable cause of contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Well, Thank reading you. the newspaper Thank day to day, I can say we have lots of experience prosecuting <laughs> teachers for assaulting minors and grooming them. Um, whether that will translate into some uh, sort of claim that involves gender transition and, and not uh, the more typical abuses, I think, you know, is yet to be seen. We, I, I am not aware of any cases like that. Sure. Can I add? Yeah, go, go right ahead. Yeah, I just want to comment on teachers. Yes, there are definitely some problematic teachers, but I also want to say there are many teachers who are allied with parents and trying to protect parental rights. So earlier I mentioned that ADF is litigating these gender support plan cases on behalf of both parents and teachers and counselors, because oftentimes it is the teacher who tells us about the gender support plans and tells the parents. And so oftentimes the interests of teachers who, and parents are aligned. Good teachers care about children and they know that children need their parents. So we are thankful that there are many great teachers in the system. Any other, any other questions? Uh, got one right here. As we heard in the beginning today that you shouldn't have a unilateral ceasefire, did we see too much ground by being totally anti-substantive due process, anti-anonymity rights for so long, at least in the public perception and the broader legal community? And do you think there can be positive spillover from taking this sort of very hot and relevant issue um, and having victories that can build on other unenumerated rights, either in the property context, the business context, um, and sort of affirming that we do support unenumerated rights in the traditional concept of American life and freedom. Anyone want to take a stab? Go ahead, Luke. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I agree with you to some degree. I think we um, should lean into the Dobbs test, frankly, that uh, uh, there are some unenumerated rights, and those are the ones that are protected by history and tradition, and I think our country is built on uh, this concept of the family and the idea that parents are the natural guardians of their children and then that, that includes not only authority over your children but also the duty to take care of them. Um, and I think I haven't done a deep historical analysis nationwide but I have in Wisconsin and the historical evidence is pretty clear that this was viewed by everyone at the time of Wisconsin's founding at least that parents had an inherent right to raise their children and the government couldn't just step in and override parents. So. I think we need to embrace at least that concept, um, and the court has already, so uh, we're on we're on pretty pretty solid ground there. Um, but obviously, the danger is how does this get used against us in the other direction? Um, and I just think lean into the history and tradition. Anyone else? Any thoughts? 
Yeah, I, I just uh, go back to what I was suggesting earlier, that same point. Uh, you know, I think there's so many ways that sort of broadly phrased, um, capacious, substantive due process type rights can be used ultimately as a weapon against uh, conservatives and against traditional, you know, ordered liberty. Um, so you know, that's, uh, I think that's my overriding concern. Emily, any, any, any thoughts? I would just say that I think this is an excellent topic for more FedSoc yeah. debates. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think we have time for one more question, maybe back in the back there. There's a subspecies of this debate raging across the U.S., and it relates to getting the trans material out of school libraries. Um, you know, while I'm deeply sympathetic to freedom and parental rights, I remember 40 years ago, Tipper Gore and her band of Washington wives wanted to ban the devil on MTV. 50 years from now, there's going to be something else. Um, and I think we have to be really smart about how we advance these claims. Um, there's a Utah case that banned the Bible recently. So what are your thoughts on the interplay between First Amendment and parental rights and how this advances? Thank you for the question. Yeah, I'm not sure if this totally answers the question, but um, one of the main lines of cases uh, that have raised parental claims has been challenges to curriculum. So parents challenging mostly sex ed curriculum. Um, and those cases have almost uniformly lost. And I think that's right, actually. Uh, and the rationale is uh, if parents have a constitutional right to dictate what the school teaches, uh, then the school's gonna have to cater a curriculum to every single parent because everybody's got different views on what's appropriate to teach and what isn't. Um, so I think that line of cases is correct. Um, but again, I think it goes to the difference between uh, sort of uh, the school has a right to decide, here's what we're going to teach, here's the requirements that we're going to have, but when an issue arises for a particular child and there's a decision to be made, we have to defer to parents. That, I think, is the core difference here, um, and that's why I think our cases are just so easy, or should be so easy, because it's, this is not a curriculum decision. And this, this is what opposing counsel will cite in these cases, is all these curriculum cases. And it's very easy to say this has nothing to do with curriculum. Whether a student starts using the opposite sex bathroom has nothing to do with curriculum. This is a serious, life-changing decision that parents need to be involved in. So I don't know if that answers the question, but I think that's a line uh, that works. Any other thoughts or from the panelists? Yeah, it, Mark, it's a great it's a great question. It really makes me sort of start thinking back to first principles about sort of where, you know, at some point you have to let the school do the job that it's you know ostensibly uh, you know there to do. Um, and I think the critical right here to me is exit rights. Uh, and you know if you know if you're not dealing with a situation where there is a particular child, the way Luke put it, but you're dealing with, do I like this institution and what it represents and what are my options? I think then the parents really have the, you know, the core right that they can exercise. Emily, go ahead. That's, a, that's an interesting point because that actually is one of the arguments in these cases that, uh, and that's actually, I think, the motivation behind the policies, why school districts are hiding this from parents because it is established definitively by the Supreme Court that parents have the right to not go to public school to send their children somewhere else. 
And as the story that I told with our client, if, if you discover that the school district is uh, going to treat your child as the opposite sex and you don't think that's what's best for your child, you are going to immediately withdraw your child from school and schools know that. And so that's why the secrecy, right? Um, so one of the arguments is this interferes with that right to withdraw my child because I can't exercise that right if I don't even know of the grounds for why I would withdraw my child. And that's, the, I think, the whole point of the secrecy. Yeah. Well, I agree that <clears throat> parents should have exit rights from the schools and from instruction, but I think parents also need um, opt-in because of the things that are being taught in schools today. So I mentioned the promise to America's parents earlier, and the third principle in the promise says that um, public schools should obtain written consent for instruction on topics related to critical theory and identity, including but not limited to topics such as race, sex, sexual orientation, and gender identity. That's an opt-in. And the reason why this is so important now is illustrated by our case in Virginia, CI versus Albemarle, which is on a critical race theory policy. It was implemented, not just books in the library, but it was implemented in every course in the school. It was implemented through teacher training. It was implemented through videos that kids were seeing. And kids were supposed to engage in exercises identifying their own privileges based on their race, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, and religion. Parents were not informed at all that this was going to be implemented throughout the school. They were not given the chance to opt out of it. Um, so what we're seeing being put into schools and into children's minds is on a whole nother level than I think some of the earlier cases that we saw on curriculum. This has reached the level of indoctrination. And so that's why it's really important for um, the courts and the legislatures to define the scope of parental rights, to say that parents do have rights not only to choose schools, but they have choices within schools. There's a famous case, bad case from the Ninth Circuit, Fields versus Palmdale, that said parents don't have fundamental rights beyond the threshold of the schoolhouse door. But when the government is indoctrinating children within the schoolhouse, parents absolutely need to be able to exercise their rights within the schoolhouse. Thanks, Emily. I think uh, we're out of time. I'd like to thank our panelists. They're very accomplished people.